Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, it's a nasty grey day, but at least it's got mild and it's no longer freezing every time we leave the house, which I have to say I'm rather appreciating. Um, vaccinations are, are spewing out all over the place, at least in London. There seems, there seems to be a wash with vaccine, which is both good and awful in the sense that so many countries are really behind in the queue. And you have to wonder what on earth is going on. So a lot of vaccine nationalism, a lot of vaccine justice discussions. And I'm sure I'll be picking those up on the blog in the future if I can persuade various people, looking at you, Kent Chadlin, to um, write posts for me. Anyway, back to the subject matter. Um, started off the week with links I liked. I just think this is something to put up on a Monday morning when people need a bit of light relief as they log on for their week's work. Um, these are the things I've seen and enjoyed the previous week, a sort of mixture of funnies and serious stuff. Uh, it was pretty much uh, humour this week. Um, first is there is a website which went dark ages ago called Stuff Expat Aid Workers Like. And it's a wonderful satirical website. And it's back, which is terribly exciting if you remember how good it was. I hope they can live up to that, um, to that fine tradition. Their first post is called Toolkits Are Great. And I think uh, it looks very promising and I hope they can keep it going. Welcome back, stuff aid, aid, expat aid workers like. The other one, I know everybody's seen it, but I just had to put it up. The, um, the poor lawyer in the States who got trapped in a filter um, uh, of a cat. And um, it was just something so plaintive and moving about this person trapped in the face of a cat saying, I'm here live. I'm not a cat. And um, the kindness of the judge saying, you know, sir, I think you've got a filter on. You need to remove it. And it was just so, it was so kind and so funny. I just thought it was a brilliant video and it went completely viral. So I'm sure you've seen it before. Uh, I'll try and do some more serious stuff for next week, obviously. Um, second post, much more serious, was a post by Lawrence Shandy or Chandy. I've never been quite sure how you pronounce his name of UNICEF, where he has the impressive job title of Director of the Office of Global Insight and Policy. Not bad. Um, he got in touch because UNICEF has a new report out called Prospects for Children, a Global Outlook through 2025. And Lawrence wanted to just summarise it on the blog. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting piece. He said that he looked, what they do is a sort of stand back and they say the two decades before the pandemic was a period of historic progress for children. And there were two overarching forces that shaped those years. The first was economic. It was a convergence in living standards driven by rapid economic growth in developing countries. And the second force has been improvements in children's lives. And I like the way he described this, that were achieved irrespective of gains in income, but rather the, from the diffusion of knowledge, whether embedded in technologies, policies or norms. So knowledge is not just about some whizzy new vaccine or some whizzy new technology. It's actually also about how people behave and how people uh, you know, conduct their lives. And that's been just as important in terms of improving children's lives. So what happened to those two forces? And I think the basic message was that post-COVID, the first one, the convergence in living standards, is looking pretty ropey. Um, you're looking at um, you know, a slowdown in growth, uh, negative growth in many countries. Um, so the second, those improvements that come about through non-economic means, through through diffusion of knowledge are going to have to pick up the slack and deliver and that's everything to play for so if you look at what's going on with vaccines as i said 
you know, that's not looking good right now, but it's a political decision and there's a lot of activism and campaigning and developing country assertiveness, as we used to call it in the WTO, going to try and improve that outcome. And that's going to be absolutely crucial for the well-being of, um, uh, of children going over the next five years. So Lawrence finishes with such optimism that the second force can pick up the slack could spread beyond health to accelerate the pace of innovation across multiple domains, energy, education, food production and beyond. We also anticipate an expanded and more active role for the state in establishing a social floor and funding research and development. So a sort of optimistic take from UNICEF about what can be done if the right decisions can be made over the next few years. The next two posts um, this week were, were me writing up chats I've had, which is one of my favorite ways of producing blogs. You get onto Zoom, you have a nice chat with some interesting people and you just write up some highlights and voila, a blog post. So the first one was um, chatting to some students uh, who are on the LSE Masters in Cities course, which is one of these many executive courses the LSE runs where people don't have to come and live in London. They can just come on and sort of fit something around their day job. And these were some super smart people working on city development, city planning, a whole bunch of issues around the urban space. Um, and they wanted to discuss their group projects, which are aimed at designing initiatives to promote different kinds of sustainability and emissions reductions in big cities. So one group had Montreal, and we're looking at building regulations. One group had Bogota, and we're looking at transport. One group had Freetown, and we're looking at natural habitat. And the, the fourth group had Amsterdam, and we're looking at consumption. So we chatted about, you know, the, and they had to come up with a project, basically a, a plan to, you know, how they can influence the city to improve on these issues which is kind of pretty much what I do on my activism course. So I was on home ground here. Um, so there was, and in these conversations, there's always some old stuff. You know, I rehash things which I've talked about on the blog a lot. The importance of critical junctures, the idea that you should travel with a compass, not a map, and be prepared to change course all the time. The way you need to distinguish between a theory of change about the system itself and then a much smaller theory of action, which is how you intend to influence rather than putting yourself at the center of everything. These are fairly standard things I talk about a lot, but there's always something either new or a slight extension of something you'd sort of half thought about before. So some of the ones that came up were money. So, you know, it's amazing how often people talking about influencing don't talk about money, but money, especially if you're trying to influence the state, is crucial. So how much is it gonna cost, the thing you're proposing? And how's it going to be paid for? So does, you know, very basic question, does City Hall have the ability to raise taxes? If not, how can it raise revenue to fund whatever good idea you've got? If it's going to make you money, if it's going to save, how much is it going to save? Because that could become a really big um, incentive for the, for the uh, town council to do what you're suggesting. Second one is carrots and sticks. You know, people tend to prefer one or the other. Either you know, you're a, you're a conflict avoider who wants to sort of create incentives for everybody to do the right thing, or you want to go out and really speak truth to power and bash the bad guys. Think about it more analytically. Have you got a right balance? Have you, have you thought through the possible carrots and sticks? Because you might have overlooked some. So think about it, you know, uh, more, more, uh, more cold-blooded way. Um, is the change you're proposing l likely to be opposed? Because actually a surprising number of influencing exercises don't actually have a great deal of opposition. If they're opposed, 
then somebody's going to be losing out, somebody's going to oppose what you're suggesting, somebody's going to lose money, or someone is violently opposed to the ideas behind what you're proposing. There's lots of reasons for opposition. You need to think about that. How do you neutralise them? How do you uh, persuade or weaken or just deal with the opposition? But a lot of campaigns are not really opposed. It's just that people in power have so many things to think about. So then it's much more about a question of how do you move it up the priority list? How do you make decision makers pay attention to that rather than the other hundred things people are lobbying them about? And then you can, yeah, there's different techniques there. So, you know, your messenger, uh, who's going to go and talk to the city, to the mayor, you know, um, is it going to be somebody that the mayor trusts and knows? Yeah, you might want to recruit champions for your topic. Is it going to be competition? You know, I love league tables, which really get people in power um, fired up. If you, if you show that they're at the bottom of the performance league, they always get really annoyed. If you show them at the top, they always get really proud and stick it on their website. So think about league tables, competition, you know, different approaches when something is unopposed. The third is how to create a sense of urgency. You know, so you Something's going broadly in the right direction. Yeah, we're slowly improving public transport, but that's not good enough in terms of climate change. You want people to do in three years what they're saying they're going to do in 10. So how do you create a sense of urgency? You know, in Britain, we have a big climate conference coming up in November, uh, the, the COP26. And you know that the fact that we're hosting that summit will mean that the government and the prime minister will want to be able to announce things and show leadership. So they're going to do a load of things on climate change this year that they wouldn't otherwise have done. So create a summit, create a moment, create a deadline um, that can help bring a sense of urgency into the conversation. Is the barrier to progress primarily political or technical? We always think it's politics, but sometimes governments just don't know how to do something. They don't have the capacity to do something, especially at you know city level or local level. So you might actually want to not bash them, but actually help them uh, do the planning, help them find the solutions, support them. Um, you know, maybe bringing in people who've done it well somewhere else, brokering conversations, or different ways to support um, uh, people who want to do good but just don't have the capacity at the moment. Um, and then the final one is understanding the political cycle. You know, this is kind of obvious to anybody who's working in campaigns, but, um, you know, if at city level, is the local mayor just elected with a big majority in a honeymoon period, in which case he or she can do, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, which might lose them votes in the short term, but they can they can pay for that, they can, they can afford that. Or are they... Um, you know, approaching an election with a wafer-thin majority and desperate not to make any enemies. That's going to make a huge difference to the level of receptivity for whatever you're suggesting. So nice discussion. Um, made me think a lot about Kate Rayworth's talk last week on donut economics because she, Kate has set up uh, this thing called the Donut Economics Action Lab and a lot of the work that is coming to them and the request for help is coming at city level. So I've got a post which uh, uh, I'll put up in a, in a week or two about th her theory of change around influencing at the city level. And it's quite different from the, from the conversation we had with the LSE group. So it'll be interesting to compare the two. Um, final piece of the week was uh, another conversation. So we've got this really fun, this is at Oxfam, it's a kind of Oxfam LSE um, collaboration. It's called Emergent Agency in a Time of COVID. And it's looking at how are popular forms of organisation changing 
either in response to COVID or in response to the government's response to COVID in different countries. And we've got this threefold structure. It's kind of emerged in a very nice um, systems-y way. Um, we weren't quite sure what we were doing. We're making it up as we go along, and I think we're doing quite a good job at the moment. Um, we've got three bits. So one bit is um, you know, compiling a big data, searchable database of uh, case studies of popular organization emergent agency. Another bit is for, uh, for case country teams in Oxfam are going to do some of this work and sort of record what they find. But the third bit, which is what I'm talking about now, is we've, we've got these clusters of people who want to work, who want to talk about a particular topic that they're excited and interested about and maybe working on. So it's kind of academics, NGOs, some practitioners, you know, people on the ground, a variety of people coming together on issues like faith organizations, children and youth, women's rights organizations, um, social movements, peace building. You know, there's, we've got about 10 of these clusters um, and, what, and they've been working and they've had two or three, most of them have had two or three conversations. So we got them all together, the cluster conveners, <coughs> excuse me, uh, on Zoom and just sort of said, right, what are you seeing? And, um, and, you know, what are your thoughts? And then we found some interesting things going on. Yeah, so in terms of the process, it's working fine. Some clusters have got 20, 30 people and they're having trouble sort of herding cats and getting people towards a conversation, but there's clearly a lot of energy there. Um, other other uh, clusters are small, half a dozen, and there they're going into more depth and they're approaching differently. So that was interesting. Another thing we found on process is that weirdly, people are pretty sick of Zoom and especially people who are very active on the ground don't necessarily want to come on a Zoom call and talk about these big meta ideas and, you know, basically, um, you know, go all academic uh, in terms of trying to uh, understand what they're doing. They just want to get on with it. So we, in the faith organization uh, cluster, we created a little hub and spoke system where each member of the group is going to go and, and, and talk to activists and feedback their views um, into the, into the, into the, the, the conversation. Um, Bit of a doubt about the name of the project. So emergent agency. And when you start thinking about it, you think, well, okay, who, yeah, emergent suggests that someone is watching it. There's an observer. And that observer is saying, yes, this is new and emergent, or no, this is something we saw before. But actually, I think in a lot of these cases, what we're finding is that things were happening before. We just weren't really aware of them. We being INGOs, academics, uh, people who work on civil society, um, <clears throat> especially on civil society organizations. So, uh, what the pandemic has done is, is widen our concept, I think, of civil society and moved us much more into thinking about informal forms of association. Not always formal CSOs with websites and accounts and you know, project plans, but much more just how are people coming together in different ways, which I think is great. It's, 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 I worry that we've become too bogged down in both only seeing these formalized CSOs, but also making those formal CSOs look a bit too much like us, Northern NGOs, and sort of weakening their, 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 their connection to the grassroots. So this could be quite a helpful process. Tactics and strategies. Understandably, a lot of organizations are pivoting back to basic needs. You know, you may have wanted to lobby for a change in the law, but right now you've just got to help people feed their families. Um, and that could be a good thing. You know, Carnegie, the Carnegie Endowment um, analysis is that this is restoring NGO or CSO legitimacy in many countries because they're being seen to help when often states are not doing very well. Um, or it, uh, it could, could actually divert people onto just doing immediate needs and away from very important longer term sort of social change. So we'll see how that goes. 
Now, the one thing that everybody knows is that there's a big shift to digital. You know, um, we're all spending our lives on in digital form and analog is um, confined to wandering around the house and occasionally going to the shops. Um, so it's obvious, but it's also profound. And I think there's, um, you know, it's starting to make people realize that things which they didn't think would work in the digital space could. So the peace building cluster, one of the people in the peace building cluster said, we had always presumed resolving conflict had to be done face to face. But a lot of organizations have embraced new online approaches. The space is involving to become more inclusive. Yeah, for example, via Facebook, we'll discuss. But I mean, what's interesting there is a shift to digital could go either way. It could be more inclusive or it could be less inclusive, it, you know, compared to the analog forms of peace building or other forms of social contract and discussion between state and, um, and society. So lots to play for, but it, a lot more things are possible in the digital space than people had realized. And it's kind of accelerated that move to online in politics. Um, so, yeah, watch out. I think, yeah, looking for what can restrain exclusion and encourage inclusion is going to be a crucial part of um, feeding into that onlineification of, of, of social organising. Social contract, you're seeing you know, both increased conflict and increased cooperation between civil society and the state, depending on the situation, depending on the performance of the state, depending on the history of the country. Um, interesting discussion on social protection. So in 2008, we had the global financial crisis. Um, and one of the things people observed there that was that countries that had some kind of social protection system in place a way of getting money quickly to large numbers of people, found it much easier to scale up in a crisis. Well, that's true turbocharged in terms of COVID. So the bits of the UK um, you know, uh, response to COVID that have worked have been those, play, those bits where they had databases already in place and could just rapidly scale up. The bits which haven't worked is where they tried to create something from scratch and did so incompetently in many cases. Um, so that's interesting. What you're also seeing is that the same is true at much smaller level at, at the level of civil society. So civil society organizations that already have a network find it very easy to expand that network, yeah, a network of you know food distribution or something like that, find it much easier to expand uh, that network, both in terms of amounts and spread um, than civil society organizations that have just come in and, and do this for the first time. Um, the final one was that, you know, one of the things that people have said a lot and it's absolutely true in COVID is that COVID has shone this spotlight on inequality and you know where there were existing inequalities before between ethnic groups between men and women between you know um, uh, regions of a country those have often been exacerbated by by COVID by the impact of the pandemic um, you can flip that though and what 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 the um, groups were saying is that actually what we're also seeing is that it, the COVID shines a spotlight on pre-existing bonds of trust. The where civil society had forms of trust in place, they're much better able to respond. And those are the bits uh, of the social system that are proving quite resilient and useful um, in terms of responding. And you know, a really nice example, which I just loved because of my background in Central America, is that in El Salvador, you have these gangs called Maras, which actually control large parts of the poorer bits of the cities like San Salvador. The evangelical churches have done deals with the Maras to get entry to the, to the poor quarters with food and support for people. And the reason they could is because the evangelical churches are, the, are, 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 basic, are based in the poorest parts of the city. And a lot of the Maras, these kind of gangsters, they know their parents go to the evangelical churches and therefore they trust them, right? 
Whereas the Catholic Church, which is much more of an institutional church in many cases, talks to the government. So the Catholic Church has bonds of trust with government and it does state level uh, response. The evangelicals talk to the gangs and go in there and do um, uh, some sort of grassroots responses. I thought that was fascinating. And the best example, and just to finish, um, the loveliest story on that call was again from the faith group um, where um, people, uh, various um, priests have come up with a socially distanced form of baptism which actually means just turning a hose on the congregation, which I just think sounds absolutely fun, although probably not in the temperatures we're going through in the UK right now. I presume that is a hot country solution. And on that note, have a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week. No, I won't talk to you next week. I'm on holiday next week, which means actually painting the kitchen because I'm not allowed to go anywhere. But anyway, I won't be blogging and I won't be doing a, a roundup. So I'll talk to you the week after next. Have a good week. Bye.